Morneal Mantha Way. It's the second story in the book. Okay. Tafar and Nicole. All right. I love the art. Yeah, isn't that great? 1950s art. 1950s SF. Do you know William Tan? He is a science fiction writer of the 50s. Um, secondly, let's go uh, look at the very end of the prelude. That is book 13, the beginning of book 13. Um, just the, um, we'll do the first 65 lines. So here he is talking about those excursions of the past, and here he um, gives what's essentially the climactic, um, or at least the last, but therefore climactic version of an experience of nature, of, of a natural event, of a natural occurrence that he's now remembering back on. So, um, uh, Ryan, why don't you start reading it? <clears throat> why are you laughing? Nothing. I'm known for my comic readings. <laughs> <laughs> um, in one of these excursions, traveling then through Wales on foot and with a youthful friend, I left Bethel Kett's huts at couching time and westward took my way to see the sun rise from the top of Snowdon. So what does that mean? If he's, if he's going to see the sun rise from the top of the mountain, when are they hiking? Night. Night, yeah. Having reached the cottage at the mountain's foot, we there roused up the shepherd, who by ancient right of office is the stranger's usual guide, and after short refreshments sallied forth. It was a summer's night, a close warm night, wan, dull, and glaring, with a dripping mist low-hung and thick that covered all the sky half threatening storm and rain. But on we went, unchecked, being full of heart, and having faith in our tried pilot. Okay, so it's a dark and stormy night, as um, Bulver Litton will say several decades later. You guys all know it was a dark and stormy night? When it was, the actual work was from? Yeah, but you know what it's from, from Peanuts? Uh, have you heard that phrase? Yeah. Did you know that, do you know why it's a meme? Because it's a trope. Isn't it like a really ridiculously long sentence? No, it's not that long. Wait, is it peanuts like Snoopy? Yeah. Charles Schultz? Yes. I mean, I'm looking at a rich couple of stuff. I don't know what it's... But you all knew the phrase, right? Yeah. Okay, so the reason you all knew the phrase was that in a period in Peanuts, Snoopy is trying to write a novel. And he's sitting on top of his doghouse with a typewriter trying to write a novel. Sure. See, the things you learn in this class. <laughs> you thought that we'd be all over the place and constantly digressing, but no, we just. <laughs> you almost got tea all over your computer, Olivia. A frequent issue, T. Oliver. Yeah. yeah. So, 
that fa- that sentence is fa- that sentence became a meme because or a trope because of peanuts. So Snoopy is is typing his novel. Is that the one that goes suddenly a shot rang out? Suddenly their dog decided he better to Okay, so I think the first one is was a dark and stormy night. Suddenly a shot rang out. A maid screamed. A door slammed. But Snoopy that keeps. Familiar. Sorry. That sounds familiar. Yeah, but where it comes from is a nineteenth-century novel by the famous bad novelist Edward Bulwer-Lytton, um, who begins another novel. His most famous novel is a novel called *The Last Days of Pompeii*, and that begins with a line that you've probably heard, which is "Hail, fellow, well met." So that's yeah. uh, it, it, he, he's he's uh, kind of famous as a writer. Yeah, exactly. So, at any rate, as it's a dark and stormy night, or at least a foggy night, as Wordsworth and a friend. I in sixth grade, definitely started the story this way. What? In sixth grade, one of my great friends definitely started. It was oh, a dark you. and stormy night. Wow. It was I, not good. No. It was very bad. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Okay, Wait, now. Actually, I just the pages. Thank you. Can you do what? Just make sure the pages are okay. Yeah. They look okay. None of them looks green and sick. All right. So, we're, we're looking at the um, beginning of book 13, which is the last book of the prelude. And here are the lines Ryan just read aloud. In. In one of those, in one of um, these excursions, traveling then through Wales on foot and with a youthful friend, I left Bethkellet's huts at couching time. What does couching time mean? Uh, like resting time. Yeah, it's um, when you go to bed, when you go to your, when you um, uh, go to your couch, and um, also when you bring um, sheep back to the fold. Sometimes called folding time, but couching time. It's also when the sun sets. So, oh, because like in, in French it's the shaving of the sun. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, so we went to see, we went westward, um, and westward took my way to see the sun rise from the top of Snowdon. So Snowdon is the highest mountain in Wales. And so they are, Wales is to the west of England, as you probably know. And so they have gone to Wales to climb this mountain to see the sun rise from the top of the mountain. So they're going to be looking eastward while they go westward. The youth who... Daily farther, farther from the east must travel. Yeah. So that's what they're doing. They're going westward, but they're going to go look back and look eastward. So um, there we went to see the sun rise from the top of snow. And having reached the cottage at the mountain's foot, we there roused up the shepherd, who by ancient right of office is the stranger's usual guide, and after short refreshment sallied forth. So there's a shepherd there. Um, by right of office means that he has the right to be the guide to take you up Snowden, which means he's being paid. That is, it's not like, oh, yay, I have the right to be woken up in the middle of the night by two young men who want to climb this mountain in the dark on a stormy night. Um, it's because they're paying him for um, the guidance. 
So it was a summer's night, a close warm night, wan, dull, and glaring, with a dripping mist low hung and thick that covered all the sky, half-threatening storm and rain. But on we went unchecked, being full of heart and having faith in our tried pilot. So the pilot is the guide, um, the shepherd, who they've roused to take them up Snowden. Anyone remember the name of um, Rochester's dog in Jane Eyre? Can you guess, <laughs> since I'm asking the question? I thought you meant the poet Rochester. No, good. Yes, good guess. Pilot. I thought you were going to ask who was um, Edmund Hillary's Sherpa. Tenzing. Tenzing Norgay. Yeah. I was like ready with that fact. All right. Okay, so the first thing they do is they wait. It's everyone's supposed to be going to bed, but they're climbing a mountain. Um, they they rouse up the um, the shepherd who's gone to bed to bring them up the mountain. So notice um, that that's being stressed. Um, okay, Meg, can you read from there? Um, so in our tri pilot line fifteen. Okay, so there, so um, it's foggy everywhere. There's nothing they can see. It might be a stupid idea to try to climb a mountain and see sunrise when it's such a foggy, foggy day. Um, or it might not, because they can climb maybe above the fog. Um, but they're all, they're chatting, but then they each sink into their own thoughts, into commerce, each, um, silently sunk each into commerce with his private thoughts. Um, keep reading, Meg, just to the end of the sentence. Thus did we breast the ascent, and by myself was nothing either seen or heard, a while which took me from my musings, save that once the shepherd's cur did, to his own great joy, unearth a hedgehog in the mountain crag. Around which he made a barking trip. Yeah, so he's, he, Wordsworth, is certainly sunk in his own musings and um, isn't even paying attention to what's around him, um, except the one thing that he um, notices is what? Dog starts looking Yeah, and, and um, the dog um, unearths the hedgehog. So the hedgehog is doing what, presumably? Sleeping. Everyone's asleep. It's time to sleep. So they, they, it's couching time. They've roused the shepherd who's gone to sleep. Now, as they're climbing the mountain, the shepherd's dog unearths a hedgehog who has, is in its den, presumably, to sleep at night. So here we have three moments in a row of um, figures who thought they were um, who, are, who are just ready to be um, safe and home and asleep, um, being awakened. Um, so it's just, it's a, it's a tiny little thing. The shepherd's cur unearths a hedgehog. Um, so this dog does this dog-like thing and um, starts barking. Um, can you read from there, Ariel? Yeah. Uh, this small adventure, for even such it seemed, uh, in that wild place and at the dead of night, being over and forgotten, on rewound in silence as before. Why are they winding? You can't go straight up. Yeah, because you can't go straight up a mountain. So 
you would either do switchbacks or you would wind around the whole thing. In this case, they're not winding around the whole thing because it's, it would be way too far to go around. But they're winding up a pathway. You can't go straight up. So um, the reason that it's an interesting word is there's a famous mountain that is climbed in a famous work of literature by winding around the whole thing that he might be referring to here. Can you give us another hint? Um, there is a figure at the very bottom of the mountain who's too lazy to climb it. Balakwa. So, which is... Oh. Um, oh, no, you're in the other class. Um, which is what? Do you know? No. So, what is it? Mount Purgatory. Mount Purgatory. That's from Dante. From Dante. Oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Um, do any of you read Philip Pullman? I know I've asked this before. Okay, so do you remember Lyra's last name before she becomes Lyra Silvertongue? Oh, oh man. Uh, Lyra Bell something. No? Yes, Lyra Bell something. Lyra Bella. Lyra Bella. Yes. <laughs> Good. Good guess. And a true one. Did you know that? Did you know that Balak was a character in Beckett? Yes. Okay. Um, so I think Pullman got it from Beckett, who got it from um, Dante. So Belacqua in Dante is, again, he's, he, Beckett loved the figure of Belacqua because he was too slothful to get himself to climb up the mountain of purgatory. At the top of the mountain of purgatory is the Garden of Eden. So um, that would be a return to the Garden of Eden. That is, the Garden of Eden, remember, is an earthly place, not, not, um, heaven. not heaven. And when um, you think of purgatory as a place of punishment, but the very top of purgatory before you get to heaven is actually a place of bliss, and that's the Garden of Eden. And Belacqua, however, um, doesn't want to go through purgatory. He's too lazy, so he's just... Um, um, sitting at the very bottom of the mountain and refuses to go up. And um, nothing can get him to stir. He's going to do it later, he tells Dante. He has no interest in making the effort to climb purgatory. So, But the climbing of purgatory takes the form of winding up a mountain um, until you get to eat. So, no, Wordsworth isn't thinking of Belacqua, who's a very minor character. It took Beckett to... Um, really notice him and um, make him a name that you remember from Dante. But it's um, uh, the idea that this has some relationship to purgatory um, is at least strongly possible. That is, that it's not only Paradise Lost, but the Divine Comedy that has some place, some background role here. Okay, so up they wind. Um, um, on we went in silence as before. Olivia? With forehead bent earthward, as if in opposition set against an enemy, I panted up with eager pace and no less eager thoughts. Thus might we wear perhaps an hour away, ascending at least distance each from each, 
and I, as chance, the foremost of the band, when at my feet the ground appeared to brighten, and with a step or two, the better still. Great, thank you. So, um, they're just in their thoughts, but he's eager to get to the top, and um, they've been climbing for an hour, not really talking to each other, and he turns out to be um, in front of everyone else, which means that he... Why is he telling us this, that he was foremost of the band? This is not... This is by no means some uh, metaphorical description of his priority. There's a particular reason in the scene setting. I, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's just worth noticing Wordsworthy and technique here. It's a typical kind of Wordsworth line, I as chance the foremost of the band. You know, it just happened that way. Yeah. It seems like that's how I would end up at the front of a group that I wasn't intending to lead. Okay, but yeah. So, I'm so. Not sure. No, that's certainly true, and that is how he ends up in front of it. Um, there's supposed to be a guide guiding them, but the guide is just making sure they're on the right road, so it's okay for him to be foremost of the band. Yeah. Is it like in these simple um, stories, like these simple biographical stories, he's like finding the, like the deep meta things about life? Yeah, he certainly is. So like... Sorry, like, but with this in with this case, it's like um, the expectation was for the shepherd to lead them through their journey, mm-hmm. but then now they sort of find themselves finding the road on their own, like him, because he's in the foremost, with the shepherd in the background, and it's like he because he's well, I don't know, for lack of a better way to say it, but like smarter, just ends up in, in, in the front. So, so you, you do want to see it as a kind of, not boast, but a moment of conscious superiority. Uh, I mean, that you want to see it that way. Yeah, I do want to see it that way. Okay, so it may well be, and there is something that um, you wonder by the as-chanced, by, by words worthy in moments like that, and I as-chanced, the foremost of the band, but I think that there's a much less central reason, but that has to do simply with the scene setting here, which is he's about to see something that if there were someone in front of him, then it wouldn't have the same surprise effect for him that it does. That is, what he's about to see suddenly is um, bright moonlight and piercing through the fog. And um, or the fog will come to an end. Now, if there was someone ahead of him, he would see them lit up by the moon before he got there. And the point is that because he's the one who's going, who's going first, then he's the one who has the fullness of the experience. It hasn't, he hasn't seen it occur to someone else. Ryan? Um, I was just, when, when we were reading this section, I was thinking about George Hoffman's poem, The Forms of Love. Huh. Where, uh, and then I got really excited when you're talking about him being sultry because he describes the same phenomenon with him and his wife read it. Mary. Read it, read it. Well, we haven't got, but we remember, I guess, what happened. He sees the sea of fog yeah. um, parked in the fields all night so many years ago. Oh, right, yes. We saw a lake beside us when the moon rose. I remember leaving that ancient car together 
I remember standing in the white grass beside it. We groped our way together downhill in the bright, incredible light, beginning to wonder whether it could be a lake or fog. We saw our heads ringing under the stars we walked to where it would have wet our feet had it been water. Though it's making me excited is that all Woodsworth is all alone, George Oppens with his beloved, and yeah. it's like they can see it together and instead of like being the solitary melancholic poet. That's great. That's great. Yeah, and that's a great poem. Um, so what was it? Sorry? What was it? It's Forms of Love by George Oppen. Oh no, I meant the thing that was at the end that they were walking. Oh, it can't have been the lake because their their feet don't get wet. Yeah. So it has so, to be fog. Yeah. So they're parked up on a Hill, like being as like lovers in The Simpsons, of a park up on Then they look out, and it looks like they're surrounded oh, by water. Oh. And they're like, whoa, what is this? And so then together they leave the they car, and they go down to that same wow. point that Wordsworth is walking up to. That's great. Yeah, and do you think he's thinking of Wordsworth? I think he asked. Oh, yeah, about, I think, yeah. 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 Well, I'm sure it also probably happened. Yeah, well, no, that's a terrible thing about Wordsworth is that everything that happens to you, he's already written about. Um, it's like <laughs> your life is just a poor imitation of Wordsworth. He did live before us. Yeah, but he's also going to live after us. Well, or if you read him when you're really young, then whatever happens to you, you've already read about. Yeah, right, no, that's true too. <laughs> Okay, so that's Harold Bloom in a nutshell, what you just said. So, okay, um, so Max, pick up from there. Nor had I time. Uh, nor had I time to ask the cause of this, for instantly a light upon the turf fell like a flash. I looked about, and lo, the moon stood naked in the heavens, at height immense above my head, and on the shore I found myself of a huge sea of mist which meek and silent rested at my feet. Thank you. So, yeah, so that would be the um, opposite, but getting to the same point that Oppen and his wife get to, which is with the huge body of water of mist, sea of mist, or lake of mist, right at their feet. And um, so there's this sudden moment of revelation that suddenly he's looking down just just look how well he describes this that he's in um, he's spaced out he's not really paying attention to his surroundings the dog unearthing the hedgehog that he does focus on but that's just such a local and such a trivial thing that it only under underlines how spaced out he is um, and then um, at his feet, the ground appears to brighten, which means he's not looking up. He's trudging along, looking at his feet, and suddenly it looks like the ground is a little brighter. And so he's not looking up at all. Um, just suddenly the ground is getting brighter, and before he can even look around, nor had I time to ask the cause of this, um, because suddenly the light upon the turf fell like a flash. It was like a lightning bolt. Um, and then he does look about, and lo, the moon stood naked in the heavens at height immense above my head. So straight overhead, presumably the full moon, 
straight overhead. It depends what time of night, obviously, but straight overhead at height immense above my head. And on the shore, I find myself, found myself of a huge sea of mist, which meek and silent rested at my feet. So what's maybe more interesting than the Oppen version is that he's just surfaced from this sea. That is that the really strange thing there, and I think it goes with what we were talking about Monday, is that usually you see a sea or a lake or something, and if you walk to its edge, you may walk into it. But it's not the place from which you come. It can be a destination, but it's not an origin. Our origin is on land. And obviously, evolutionarily, our origin is, is in the seas. But, um, but personally, um, ontogenically, as the poets say, um, individually, it's if you see any kind of sea, if you see the children sport upon the shore and hear the mighty waters rolling evermore, any kind of sea that you become aware of is something that you get to. It's the edge of our habitation. It's what bounds our habitation in and um, where we come to the edge of where it is that we live. But he describes that moment, the same moment that Oppen is describing, but he describes it now as not someone who has crossed land to reach a sea of mist. The way you might, if you're thinking about hiking in Wales, from Snowdon, if you look westward from Snowdon, you can see the sea, you can see the Irish Sea. So one might do that if you were in England, if you were in Wales, if you were traveling westward in England and to the edge of the island, um, the island home, as Churchill calls it. But what he does is he emerges from the sea of mist and finds it at his feet. And so it's not that it's a place that he gets to from somewhere else, it's he gets to the point that you would get to that place from somewhere else but he's not coming from somewhere else. So that, I think, be struck by that, that I found myself, and on the shore I found myself of a huge sea of mist, but he finds himself on that shore because he's just come out of that sea, um, which meek and silent rested at my feet. Um, Tafara, go on from there. <clears throat> rested. Oh. So line uh, 45. Far, far beyond. No, no, um, two lines before that. A hundred hills. Oh, a hundred hills, their dusky backs upheaved, all over the still ocean and beyond. Far, far beyond, the solid vapors stretched in headlands, tongues, and promontory shapes into the main Atlantic that appeared to dwindle and give up his majesty, usurped upon far as the sight could Okay, thank you. So you're reading the 1850? Yes. Um, you have the 1805 on the left-hand page? Yes. Do you want me to read that as well? May as well. Okay. <laughs> or actually, you know what? Um, keep your eyes on the 1850 and I'll read the 1805. This okay. is worthwhile because it's worth seeing the kinds of revisions that Wordsworth made line by line by line 
And there were visions of someone who's a much more practiced poet. I mean, he's an incredibly practiced poet already, but um, they but he stays in practice. Yeah. And the main Atlantic is so much better than the sea, the real sea. See, I don't agree with you. Really? Yeah, no. I absolutely don't agree with you. You just read the sea, the sea, the real sea. Yeah, because I, I like I like the that's main seen. with yeah. the primary and also the ocean. Yeah. Um, I like how he brings them together instead of having to say it twice. Yeah, but yes, I know I understand that, and that's that's how he was thinking too. But I think it's like when he changes um, that do not live like living men to that do not move like living men. Um, One one of the things that he is persistently doing in his in his um, revisions is varying his vocabulary. So some of you have taken, have written papers for me already, and you know that I tend to have a habit of, of flagging when you repeat a word. You do? <laughs> Too late. <laughs> oh, well. If you've written... <laughs> you've not, I guess I've never repeated words a lot until this essay. <laughs> Well, no, it's if, if you say something like, like um, all right, find a sentence you don't like. Find okay. a sentence you're worried Homelessness about. Homelessness is all No, 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 I don't mean that you're repeating... A theme. Yeah, I don't mean that you're, th- you're repeating a thematic word. I mean it's um, when you repeat a word whose repetition makes your sentence sound repetitive. Uh, so if, I, if you were to write the sentence that I just said, I would... I would underline repeat, repetition, and repetitive, and I would say, come up with synonyms for this. Don't yeah. just keep using versions of the word repeat in this single sentence. Repetition so, and repetitionous. Yes. Um, your repetitious repet- rep- repetitiveness um, uh, is repeating upon me, to use a southernism. And um, so... When you say that do not live like living men, if you are Wordsworth, uh, if, when Wordsworth writes that, they, that, they, that there were these forms that do not live like living men, that's the kind of thing that an editor, you know, if he submits this to, to um, Copper Canyon, the editor at Copper Canyon will underline the two versions of the word live and say, do you want to change one of these? And the change, an obvious change, would be that do not move like living men, um, or that do not live like um, real men, something like that, or that do not live like like human beings. Um, but that do not live like living men can feel overly, like you can be distracted by the repetition of the same word like that in a place where you should be varying it up. Yeah. I think, like, from, like, as a writer, I see the changes as moving towards specificity. Mm-hmm. So, if, like, live, like, living men, like, living is really broad. Yeah. It can encompass anything. Yes. But, like, moving is, like, a specific aspect of, it's one of the characteristics of, it, of living. Right. So it's, like, more specific. And also, like, into the main Atlantic. Is more specific it's than more, the sea, the yeah, real it's sea. More concrete. Yeah. Than the real sea. Yeah, exactly. 
So let me just, you look at the 1815, I'll read you the 1805 of just what you did because we had the, the, the complementary experience. So um, I found myself, so this is at line, what would be 43. I found myself on a huge sea of mist, uh, a huge sea of mist, which meek and silent rested my feet. A hundred hills, their dusky backs upheaved all over this still ocean, and beyond, far, far beyond, the vapors shot themselves in headlands, tongues, and promontory shapes into the sea, the real sea that seemed to dwindle and give up its majesty, usurped upon as far as sight could reach. So what differences are you noticing besides the main Atlantic? Uh, the vapors shot themselves. Yeah, what do you have in 1850? Um, the vapors stretched. Yeah. I like that better. You like stretch better? I like stretched better. Okay. Um, I like shot themselves better, but it may just be that I'm so used to the 1805. Most most critics prefer the 1805 prelude. There are few who make the case for the 1850 as being more accomplished, being more um, being edited. That that Wordsworth's edits are good edits because he was even if he stopped being a great poet, um, he certainly had an amazing poetical ear to the end of his life, and all his edits were good ones. Those of us who prefer the 1805 version prefer it precisely for the lack of specificity. That is that if you talk about the main Atlantic, then you're located in a particular place. And it's a wild place. It's great. Mount Snowden and the Atlantic, that's really something. But the sea, the real sea, um, do people know what the most famous version of something like that is? The phrase, the sea, the sea? No, a lot older. Odyssey. Not quite that old, but almost. <laughs> Googling. Uh, wait, the Inyad. No. <laughs> no. All right. Keep guessing and um, Rumpelstiltskin. That's the answer. No, it's not. It's you could never guess Rumpelstiltskin's name. There is, it's, a, it's the most famous moment in the description by Xenophon of the retreat of the, it, it's in a work called Anabasis, and it's the retreat of the Greek army after it has lost to the Persian army, and, it, and it's like Dunkirk, it's a retreat that was um, almost impossible, and it looked like the entire Greek army was going to be destroyed, but they managed to retreat back from this loss and get back to Greece. So the name of the book by Xenophon is Anabasis. Socrates, Plato Socrates, who is also known to Xenophon, was one of the officers who was commanding this retreat. But what's happening is that the Greek army is retreating from Persia and the most amazing, the climactic moment of that is they just don't know what's going to happen. They're starving, terrible things are happening. And then they turn a corner and someone yells out Thalassa, Thalassa, which means the sea, the sea, um, which means they've made it, that, that they've gotten back to the shore and they're going to be able to get home. So that moment when they cry out the sea, the sea, that's one of the 
that's one of the great <coughs> moments in classical literature. Um, if you've read, has anyone read The Road? Cormac McCarthy? So there's a place, I don't know if, I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know if this occurs in the movie, but there's a place where the father and the son get to the seashore and cry out, the sea, the sea. And McCarthy, who usually doesn't want you to think of anyone except William Faulkner, um, is thinking of that moment. That is that it's, they've achieved something. They've managed to get to the sea. And does it have like anything to do with how, like the seas, like, well, that's where we came from. Yeah. Like a, like well, a Wordsworth didn't know that, but. Oh yeah, like some sort of mother figure because. Yeah. Yeah, like, well, maybe I'm overthinking. Like, Swinburne is going to call it mother and lover of men, the sea. I will go down to the great green mother, mother and lover of men, the sea. Who? Um, Algernon Swinburne, who's a mid-19th century poet. Um, he is... Has anyone tried the beginning of Ulysses, even if you haven't read the whole thing? Yeah. So at the beginning of Ulysses, Buck Mulligan says to Stephen Dedalus, isn't the sea what algae calls it, A-L-G-Y, algae, which means Swinburne. Um, our great green mother, the snot green sea. So that's um, Buck Mulligan making fun of Swinburne by calling it the Snot Green Sea. But um, Swinburne is also thinking of Xenophon. It's a great poem. I mean, that, that's why Buck Mulligan has it in his, in his mind. Um, so you get something that you lose if you call it the main Atlantic. You get, you know, you get something maybe that feels more uh, vivid, if you call it the main Atlantic. That is, you're, you can think of the Atlantic Ocean and our picture, you know, our picture of the sea is a large and indeterminate body of water. Our picture of the Atlantic Ocean is white caps and storms and, and if you say, you know, the, the word main always makes you think the bounding main, so it's, so, so it's all choppy and it, it's much more vivid. But what it gains in vividness, it loses in inspecificity. And like dwindle and give up its majesty. Yeah, I think so. Nice. That's a good phrase. You should write that down. Yeah. I also think like into the sea, the real sea, like mimics that weird doubling effect that he's witnessing, and that's like what nice. the magic of the moment is. And so if you say the Atlantic, then it's like, well, yeah, there's the fog, and then there's the Atlantic, and they're different things, as opposed to like they're both seas. Yeah, and he's also, I think that's right. Yeah, that's great. Um, to say that the real sea means that um, there is this real sea, but, but it's, I think that's great. Um, so, so there's the real sea, but then there's also this sea. Whereas the main Atlantic is treating the word real as something realer than the way the 1805 version of the prelude treats the word real. That is, does that make sense to people? That, that if you talk about the main Atlantic, that means he can pull out his GPS and you know, he, can, he can expand it and says, Atlantic. And he says, oh, that's the Atlantic. That is, it's a particular place in the world. It's a particular place on the map. Whereas if you talk about the sea, you're not talking about a particular place on the map. 
And so the real sea, yeah, it, it, maybe what you would say is that the main Atlantic, I think this is really good because I think you're getting a sense of what Wordsworth does at his best, even if you disagree that this is him at his best. Um, what Wordsworth does at his best, which is how he handles these atmospheres. And the main Atlantic, how does the line go? That, what does the main Atlantic do? That appeared to dwindle and give up his majesty, usurped upon far as the sight could reach. Okay, so um, so it's so until the main Atlantic appeared to dwindle and give up his majesty, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's from that seemed to dwindle, and he turns seemed into appeared, partly because he needs one more syllable when he changes um, into the sea, the real sea. When he changes that into the main Atlantic, the sea, the real sea, is five syllables. The main Atlantic, no, it's five also. Um, uh, that seemed or that appeared to dwindle and give up his majesty. So in all those cases, what he's doing in the second version, in the 1850 version, is making the main Atlantic with all that it has of specificity, all of that is transferred to the Sea of Mist. But what's being transferred is the whatever power you would ascribe to specificity. Whereas in the 1805 version, the power that's being transferred isn't being transmuted the way it is in the 1850 version. The sea, the real sea, is already a spooky place just like the Sea of Mist. It's not that there's a real sea and then, ooh, a spooky Sea of Mist. And I think that's why I think the 1805 is actually closer to Oppen. It's not that there's, a, that there's the Atlantic Ocean, a real place, where you can take a boat and then a sea of mist, which is spooky. And they're spooky in both of them. But that the real sea is already um, um, has, is given by the scene the same spookiness that the Sea of Mist has. That is to say that if the Sea of Mist is spookily a sea, that's what's spooky about it is because it's a sea, then the kind of sea that it is is the kind of sea that's spooky. And that spookiness also applies to the real sea. Whereas in 1850, the Sea of Mist is spooky, but the real sea is not the main Atlantic is not. And so the spookiness isn't as universal in 1850 as it is in 1805. In 1805, it turns out, you want to know what the, what's spooky about the sea, it's that the sea, the real sea, looks like a sea of mist. Um, seas are spooky because they're like mist. That's what 1805 is saying. And 1850 is saying, seas of mists are spooky because they're not like the, the main Atlantic. But the main Atlantic seems to have given its power in a transmogrified form to the Sea of Mist. And the 1805 prelude doesn't transmogrify nature as the 1850 does. So that's why you have the do not live like living men 
it's still the word live. They do not live like living men, so there's an opposition there that isn't an opposition because they do live, not like living men, but they do live, which means they all, that living men, that the word living applied to us, human beings, is a word whose meaning is already spooky because it's these, these forms that he hears in nature, they do live. And so if we live too, we're a whole lot more like them than we realized. And so the very negation, they do not live like living men, turns out to be the sign of a deeper connection. The difference is standing for the difference that makes us able to distinguish them from us in spite of a far deeper similarity. And it's the far deeper similarity that matters. Yeah? Could you, like, I don't know if it would work grammatically, but like, if, could you apply the negation to like the second live? So like, they do not live like living men, and then applying like that they live like dead men somehow, or like connecting to... Yeah, but it would, what it would mean then, however, is that um, dead men can still live. Yeah. Not like living men, but they're still yeah. living. Because, like, I don't know, there's a lot of like, passages where he's like, and then I like, felt a connection to like, people of old. Yeah. So, like, would that... No, I think, I, yeah, I think, I think it is, but, and, and I think that what happens persistently in Wordsworth is that, that sometimes those connections, you know, make perfect sense. Oh, look, this is the room that Newton lived in, and, you know, this is, I'm walking around in the same place, you know, and seeing the same things, and how cool is that? Um, and that's a connection, but it's not a spooky one. It's um, Newton's dead, Milton's dead, I'm alive. Now I'm dead, but you can still go visit Cambridge and, and go see the same colleges. Um, and that's, that's a connection where the past is like the present. But when it gets spooky is when it goes the other way, when the present is like the past. When the, the non-specificity of just that negation, they do not live like living men, that's Unspecif- that's despecifying how they live. And usually when we're not, when we're being inspecific, we're being vague, and that's usually regarded as, as a f- fault or a flaw. It means that there isn't clarity there. But I think for Wordsworth, it's the non-specificity rather than being a kind of vagueness, and I think that's what's so important about this episode, the non-specificity, rather than being kind of being a kind of vagueness, becomes a kind of truth, and um, the the actual is something you know. The main Atlantic is something that is different from the more general and unspecific truth of things. So, living men are actual men, let's say, and actual human beings. And these things in nature that do not live like living men, then how do they live? Well, not in the mo- not in the realm of actuality, but still in the realm of they still live. And um, it's not that they live 
they live in a way that, that, that it makes no that's not, not the opposite of death. Usually what the word live means is to be temporarily able, to be tempor temporarily alive, and it is the opposite of what will eventually come, which is death, which is the undermining of living. So we talk about living people. Um, I know someone still living who can tell you what happened in this World War II battle. And, you know, still is a word, you know, the word alive, putting a still before the word alive, that's, no one says, oh, wait, why are you saying still alive? That depresses me so much. Still alive is, you know, almost a standard <laughs> phrase. What? It was like you didn't know they were all going to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, but these forms that do not live like living men, it means in a sense that you would never say of them that they are still alive. Because you might say still they're alive, but you wouldn't say they're still alive. Because that would imply that there's some limitation to that. Some local, let's not say specification, then let's say localization, that they're alive for a time and then they'll stop being alive. And it's not, and what Wordsworth is doing is delocalizing. And when he delocalizes, that's when things get really spooky. And this is about just that. He's going to a particular spot to see a specific thing happen, which is the sun rise from the top of Snowden. He knows just where he's going. And then suddenly he's surrounded by a sea. Now remember in book two, he says, I saw blessings spread round me like a sea. Now this is quite a different sea. It's not a sea of blessings. He is seeing a sea where there, no map would show a sea there, and there it is. And um, I found myself, I mean, just look at this, and on the shore, again, tell me what it says in 1850. So the moon stood naked in, in the heavens at height immense above my head, and on the shore I found myself of a huge sea of mist, which meek and silent rested at my feet. Oh, it says, the moon hung naked in a firmament of azure without cloud, and at my feet rested a silent sea of hoary mist. Yeah, so, good description, but hoary mist is not nearly as good as sea of mist. A silent sea of hoary mist, or a huge sea of mist. It's more ominous, a yeah. huge sea of mist. Yeah. Also, for the other, for the intimacy, the real sea that seemed, um, you you do need the appear to make it the right number. Oh, is it? How does it go? Yeah. Yeah, because you said the, the, you counted the real sea, mm -hmm. but it, the sea, the real sea, but it's actually into the sea. The oh, okay. Sea. And into the main Atlantic? Oh, in, oh never mind. It says it may. What is it? <laughs> What's into the, yeah, into the, the, main, main, into uh, the main Atlantic that appeared. Well, okay, so the, the reason into the main Atlantic. I think, yeah. wasn't it because of the, uh, like, AA, the main Atlantic that appeared? Like, it just okay. sounded better if you Into wanted. the main Atlantic that appeared. Well, you, you can align the main. You can't align yeah. the sea. So yeah. So, the main and then into the, the sea, the real sea that seemed... No, actually, no, into the sea, the real sea is, is hypometrical. It's only got nine syllables. Into the sea, the real sea that seemed. Yeah, but it's not that seemed. 
It really isn't. <laughs> Even if Wordsworth read it that way, it's... Um, no, I think the reason for that, actually, that's great. Because what's making the line work and making none of us notice that it's missing a, a syllable, that it is catalectic, as we say, is the phrase real C. That is that you get two stressed syllables in a row there. So you have into the C, the real C. And that slows you down. And it slows you down enough that it takes the um, uh, time to process the line that it would take if it were ten syllables long. I also like the spacing of the C syllable. Like it's the repetition of the sound C. Yeah. The C. The, the real, real C. That seemed. Yeah, it's E, 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 E. C, real C, seemed. Yeah. And that slows you down enough. All those stress syllables slow you down enough that it's okay that it's missing that final, that final foot. But then he fixes it and makes it much more normal and regular iambic pentameter. So that's a good fix. He's brilliant. He knows how to, he, you know, he can do iambic pentameter in his sleep. He can do iambic pentameter in his, in his um, crusty old age. That's great. But it's really amazing then. I mean, it, there's, um, there's a famous editor of Paradise Lost uh, named Bentley who was, is known as like the worst editor who ever lived. And um, that's not easy to be the worst editor who ever lived because you really have to know what you're doing. And then, um, you know, anyone can be a bad editor, but to be really the worst. So Bentley was a classical editor. He edited Homer, and he's an 18th century editor. And then um, he edited Paradise Lost, and he said, I'm going to do my edition of Paradise Lost. What clearly happened in Paradise Lost, as you guys know, I think, is that Milton dictated Paradise Lost to his daughters. And he would compose all night, and then in the morning he would have 20 or 30 lines, that he had composed um, all night long, and then he would dictate those lines to his daughters and they would write them down. And um, Bentley, who was a tiny, weeny little bit of a misogynist, said his daughters were morons and had no idea what their father was dictating. And so there are all these problems in Paradise Lost where they misheard what he was saying. And um, no, and this is this is a really good example of such a mishearing. I think they misheard what he was saying, and they therefore normal. They therefore came up with bizarre locutions for what Milton was really saying. So you'll remember at the very beginning of Paradise Lost, we hear about um, and chiefly thou. Uh, or what is it? Uh, a man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden. Until one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat, sing heavenly muse that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who in the beginning who for in the beginning who first taught the chosen seed, etc. So um, the phrase is that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai. So Mount Oreb is actually the mountain that Moses climbed to get the Ten Commandments. 
And so Milton talks about the muse who inspired Moses when he went to the top of Oreb and he got the Ten Commandments and he got, in fact, the entire um, five books of Moses and the entire Mishnah according to the Jewish tradition. All of that happened in the 40 days he was there. And the phrase and the line is that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai. So Bentley, who explains all his editorial emendations, underlined secret, and he says, secret? Why would it be secret? It's no secret where Moses went. He went to the top of the mountain. He talked to God. He got the, he got the, um, uh, the Pentateuch. He came back down. Um, clearly, Milton said sacred top of Oreb, but his daughters didn't realize that Oreb was a sacred mountain, and so he said, oh yes, the sacred top of Oreb, Oreb Sinai, and they wrote down secret, and that was just wrong, so he changes that to sacred. And um, what Bentley was amazingly good at doing was finding every single interesting moment in Milton <laughs> and making it uninteresting. <laughs> or Now, that's an exaggeration. He didn't find every single interesting moment in Milton. But the point is, if Bentley changed something, it's worth looking at what he changed. Because it may seem something totally innocuous. But if Bentley saw something there that he felt he had to revise, if he saw something and wanted to revise it, then he saw something good. <laughs> and so he's actually a really helpful guide to Paradise Lost, which is always ask yourself when Bentley revises something, what was good about the original? It's like asking what is it that Barr is, um, is blacking out on the Mueller report? <laughs> Um, that's the interesting stuff. So Bentley is, you heard me say Bentley is the Bob Barr of the 18th century. And, um, Bill Barr. Bill Barr, I'm sorry. <laughs> the Bill Barr, thank you. Um, so uh, I was thinking of the elephant, the Barr. Oh, oh. I love that cartoon. <laughs> yeah, it was so sad. Was it just sweet? Wait, why is it sad? Because, because his parents were killed. It's like Bambi. What? You didn't know that? They're killed? Yeah. Wait, aren't they kings? They're elephants, though. Yeah, but like, aren't they like royalty? Yeah. Oh, Sorry, oh that was a spoiler. Like, since the elephant world is what we're learning. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I didn't know. Such a cute little elephant family. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Tragedy in a literature class. Okay, so the point is 1850 Wordsworth. It's really worth looking at every change he makes um, to see what was so good about the 1805. Yeah. <laughs> and he's his own Bentley. Now, I'm not going to say that all the changes are the worst. They, that, that's, that can only happen once in history, that, that someone is as, in, as un, as unfailingly accurate as Bentley, has such an unfailing nose for truffles, um, can be so piggish with his unfailing nose for truffles. Um, but that's um, 1850 words. So here he makes what's a really, really good um, uh, revision of a line which is not which is defective, and he makes a good good revision. So it's not defective anymore. Um, he changes seem to appeared, 
Um, and then uh, the sea, the real sea, he gets rep rid of the repetition, so it's the main Atlantic. And that's all really, really well done, but the it it's, shows you what was so good, in my opinion, about the previous line. So that so that you have a sea of mist which becomes connected to the sea, the real sea, that seemed to dwindle and give up its majesty, usurped upon as far as sight could reach. So, <coughs> again, notice he can't see the real sea. It's usurped upon as far as sight could reach because it's covered with what? The sea with the sea of mist. So there he is at the top of the mountain, but he's unable to see the real sea. And um, what do you have for, what's the 1850 version for far, far beyond the vapor shot themselves? I know it's stretched, but how does the line begin? Far, far beyond the solid vapors stretched. Okay, so solid vapors, do we like that? No. No, I don't think so. Um, shot themselves is actually probably a memory that he's forgotten by the 1840s of A Midsummer Night's Dream, um, which is um, Oberon describing um, the music that um, he heard a woman playing, and he says that certain stars shot madly from their spheres to hear the sea maid's music. So I think that's probably, you know, it's not an illusion. It's, it's actually really important to, again, to feel an atmosphere of poetry is to kind of have a sense of things that might be echoing dimly in his head, far, far away in, in, in places in his head um, from poetry that he's read. And um, so the word shot there, there are not that many uses of the word shot in this sense in poetry. Um, but certain stars shot madly from their spheres. Here they're shooting, um, um, shooting themselves, shot themselves in headlands, tongues, and promontory shapes into the sea, the real sea that seemed to dwindle and give up its majesty, usurped upon as far as sight could reach. Um, Nicole, read from there. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the moon looked down upon the shoe. Show actually. Show. Uh -huh. No, it's spelled shoe, but it's pronounced show. Meanwhile, the moon. It's like so, like when you sew. Uh, right. yep. Meanwhile, the moon looked down upon this show in single glory, and we stood the mist touching our very feet, and from the shore, at distance not the third part of a mile, was a blue chasm, a fracture in the vapor, a deep and gloomy breath breathing place through which mounted the roar of waters, torrents, schemes, innumerable, roaring with one voice. Okay. Thank you. Can you read the 1850 version of that? It's really different. Yes, I know. <laughs> Not so the ethereal vault. Encroachment none was there nor loss. Only the inferior stars had disappeared or shed a fainter light in the clear presence of the full-orbed moon who, from her sovereign elevation, gazed upon the billowy ocean as it lay, all meek and silent, save that through a rift, not distant from the shore whereon we stood, a fixed, abysmal, gloomy breathing place, mounted the roar of waters, torrents, streams, innumerable, roaring with one 
voice. Thank you. So, um, are you shaking your head? No, Max, are you shaking your head about that? No. No, okay. Uh, what do we think of the 1850 version compared to the 1805? I need to see it. Yeah, okay. I, I like the blue chasm, a fraction of the vapor that yeah. got lost in the 1850. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, at any rate, in both versions you have the idea that the shore, that the word shore now is not being, is being used um, directly. So, meanwhile, the moon looked down upon this show in single glory, and we stood the mist touching our very feet. And from the shore, so the shore is where they are. So it's the shore of the sea of mist. He says it's the mist touching our feet, but then he says from the shore, he's accepted that they're on a shore. And from the shore, a distance not the third part of a mile, was a blue chasm, a fracture in the vapor, it's a strong word, a fracture in the vapor. Think how strange a phrase that is. We accept it now because he's written this so amazingly well. But vapors don't fracture. And yet, it's now making sense that we get something solid, liquid, and gaseous all at the same time. A fracture in the vapor, a deep and gloomy breathing place. So who has to breathe? The fracture. Yeah. Or through the fracture, what would be breathing? Nature, maybe, that doesn't live like living men? And it doesn't breathe like breathing men. Doesn't breathe like breathing men. Nice, yeah. Through which mounted the roar. And then this is exactly the same in both version, versions. The roar, and listen to the sounds of that, the roar of waters. How do you guys pronounce water? Water. Okay, now some of you are, are more on the what side and some more on the what side. Um, sorry? I've heard he said water, that's what you're looking for. I'm not looking for anything, I'm just. Sorry? Like he would have pronounced the T. Yeah, water. Yeah. Water, yes. So, mounted the roar of waters, torrents. <laughs> <laughs> No, but just just hear just hear the sounds, the roar of waters, torrents, streams. So the all those STRs and all the vowel sounds, the O R or A R vowel sounds, roar. So so that's very onomatopoetic. The roar of waters, torrents, streams, innumerable, roaring with one voice. Now technically if you were being extremely accurate about um, the grammar here, it would be mounted the roar of waters, torrents, streams innumerable. But this is a case where enjambment is really important. Remember the sense variously drawn out from one verse to the next? That's Milton's note on the verse. So what's the adjective innumerable modifying? The roars. I think it's the steams. So it's te grammatically it's modifying streams, yeah. um, but it's sort of um, it feels like 
it's modifying the whole thing from roar on, mounted something innumerable, namely the roar of waters, torrents, and streams. And again, there's a kind of inspecificity about that very unspecific word, innumerable. It can't be numbered. There's a kind of inspecificity about that, about that word, which means not that, oh yeah, there were waters and torrents and also a lot of streams, but that what's innumerable is the whole shebang. And again, there's a Shakespearean, and there's no question that this is in his mind and probably explicitly in his mind, a Shakespearean um, uh, precursor to this, which is when... I think this is, this is, I'm not going to insist on its importance, but this is extremely important to this scene. When in King Lear, how many people have read King Lear? So when in King Lear, um, Gloucester and his, Edgar is leading his blind father, Gloucester, to what Gloucester thinks is the top of a cliff uh, of Dover, from which Gloucester plans to jump. Gloucester doesn't realize that the person leading him is Edgar because he's blind, so he doesn't realize his son is leading him. He thinks a beggar is leading him. And um, he believes that they're climbing a cliff. And he hasn't told the beggar who's leading him where they're going, what, what he wants to do at the top of the cliff, but he plans to jump. Edgar, his son, of course, knows all this, but Gloucester doesn't know that Edgar knows it. So they're not actually climbing. They are simply walking along a flat surface, but Edgar is leaning forward and making Gloucester lean forward so that they think that they're climbing. And then Edgar describes, Gloucester says, what do you see? And Edgar says, we're, we're high above the sea. Um, it's, it's giddy making how high we are above it. The sea extends everywhere. Um, everything looks small and um, far, far below on the shore, he says, the unnumbered pet, he can, he can feel, he can hear, no, sorry, he says, um, the surge of the sea upon the unnumbered pebble cannot be heard so high. And so notice that he uses the word unnumbered, which is the same as innumerable, unnumbered oddly enough with a singular noun, not the unnumbered pebbles, but the unnumbered pebble. And it's a great striking Shakespearean moment, that singular noun. Well, it's not a great moment, but it's a very Shakespearean moment, which is that the very unnumberedness, the very innumerability there becomes even evident in the fact that he doesn't use a plural for the word pebble. That is, that a plural is a way of counting. If you say there are unnumbered pebbles, you're still distinguishing them from one another as though they could be counted. When you use a plural, the reason we all make the mistake of using data as a singular noun, when scientists will always say the data show, right? What do you say when you write I, science papers? It, it, it show, or I mean, I don't refer to a singular piece of data, or datum, I guess, right. it's a singular, I don't ever really have. But you always use data as a plural noun, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. No. So, so I mean, the rest of us speaking, don't. In speaking, I know we say shows. Like, yeah. But I, I catch it when I'm writing. That's right. Thing. Yeah. So scientists catch it. Most people don't. And, um, but, the reason most people don't is that um, what data t seems to mean to most of us is um, a lot of evidence. That is something that you. Um, is so much evidence that you don't want to, unless you're a scientist, you don't want to say, well, there's this and this and this and this and this, and distinguish them one by one by one by one by one. Um, so when you have something like the unnumbered pebble or the roar innumerable, um, what you're saying is it's, so, it's a lot, but it's also general. So because it's general, we, the, the, using the S suffix to pluralize it would make it look like it's not general, it's a bunch of specific things. Yeah. Just because you brought up the scientific connection, the thing that came to mind is soon, the first time you said, the, like when you were saying unnumbered pebble, my first thought was that in physics, if we're looking at a general description of some sort of situation, or like if it's particles, if we have a, a fluid or something, we look at the ith particle, which mm -hmm. is just any. Right. You know, it's not. It's as general as we can get it. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's, you know, not any of the particles. It is the ith one. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Yeah. Also, like, an infinite amount. Yeah. It's yeah. It's like, it's a singular word. Right, exactly. An infinite amount. So you don't say an seven portions amount <laughs> yeah. or something like that. Okay, good. So here what we have is that enjambment, I think, is amazing. Mounted the roar of waters, torrents, streams, innumerable. So again, something you taught in high school is not to pause at the end of a line of poetry if there isn't a punctuation mark. And um, as I said when we were looking at Milton, that's not quite true. It's the, there should be a pause because that's what makes it a poem. That's why there is a line ending. The line ending is not trivial. And what tends to happen is that when you're very young, you take line endings as, as more significant than they are and as simply the end of a thought, which they're not. But then when you're, when you're taught not to do that, you, um, you are often taught to overreact and pretend that the line endings aren't there at all. And they are there. And so what you should be doing is noticing um, that there's something ending there Namely, this list of things mounted the roar of waters, torrents, streams, and then go on, innumerable, and that's applying to the whole list. Roaring with one voice, so it becomes singular again. The universal spectacle throughout was shaped for admiration and delight. So that is... Um, nature is teaching us a lesson, and those are like the two bad lines in this whole thing. But I think he knows they're bad. He's trying to turn them. He's trying to turn what he's seeing here into a reason to think that the world is meaningful. So the universal spectacle throughout is shaped for admiration and delight, grand in itself alone. But in that breach through which the homeless voice of waters rose, that dark, deep thoroughfare had nature lodged the soul, 
the imagination of the whole. So nature lodged. Remember the, our lodging was an alpine house. Nature lodged the soul, the imagination of the whole. But where did she lodge it? In a breach, in mist. And what's in that breach? It's where the homeless voice of waters rose. And that's, you know, if you need one, let's say you need 10 phrases to stand for the prelude in your memory, homeless voice of waters might be one of them. Homeless voice, just think what a strange phrase that is. Where do voices have homes? Since voices are always going out into the world. Homeless voice, and then it's the homeless voice of waters. And you want us to think about the alpine lodging with the river. With the, and with the, yeah, with the roar of waters, um, deaf and stunned by noise of waters, is what he's describing in the alpine lodging. How he was deaf and stunned by noise of waters. So that is, I think, the last and climactic version of the um, description of nature that he's giving in the prelude. Okay, so we have 15 seconds on the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Lots of water in the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. Now, we'll talk about it at, in our last class, which is exam day. Uh, we'll definitely do Coleridge. Um, no, Monday is not this class, is it? I think Monday. It's Friday. It, it's a week from Friday in the morning, um, like 9 p.m. I'll send it to you. It's a, if you go to the registrar's website um, and look at the exam schedule, just look for the exam for this class. Um, because they now have this thing where you can, instead of having an exam, you can have an extra class, but it's all scheduled on the same place. So that's what we're doing. Same um, place? I think it'll say on the register. No, I don't know where it is. It'll say on the website. You can also Google Francis Fagels. I know the first thing that shows up is a PDF of Oh, okay. That's good. Okay, you guys, so see you in um, nine days or something. Sorry? We didn't get to the next. Yeah, that's true. I lost my ID again. So did I. I lost my ID yesterday. Oh, my God. Yay. There's some kind of. Do you think Bill Barr is trying to tell us?